if we're doing the work and we're, we're self-actualizing, that means I'm going to use technology for good. I'm going to use it to love better, to, to, to right the wrongs, uh, to make sure AI is not biased, to make sure that I'm not using social media to perpetuate fake news. Like to me, if we're doing the work, we're going to use technology for good. If you are fear-based, you're going to interact with technology from a fear-based place because we humans are the director of where technology is going. Welcome to the Disrupted Workforce, where we help courageous professionals explore, expand, and evolve in the future of work. Are you curious to understand how all these disruptions are changing how we work in our careers? Trying to self-assess and build an actionable plan to thrive in the future of work? Looking for research and insights from thought leaders to help you and your organization? Then this is the show for you and you found your tribe. I'm Alex Schwartz. And I'm Nate Thompson. And we are your hosts. Today on TDW, we are incredibly excited and honored to welcome Cheryl Cran. Cheryl Cran is the founder of Next Mapping, a future of work consultancy. She was named the number one future of work consultant by Analytica and a top 10 future of work consultant by Go Catalan. And her clients include Amazon, Salesforce, Kaiser, and many more. She's an executive board member for Fast Company and on the faculty for Exec Online. She's the author of 10 books, including her most recent, Super Crucial Human, this fantastic book she published in 2022, which we're going to be talking about a lot on the show today. And she says in the book, the book is called Super Crucial Human because it's crucial we become better humans. And we couldn't agree more. Find more about Cheryl at nextmapping.com. That's N-E-X-T-M-A-P-P-I-N-G.com. Let's dive in. Thank you, Cheryl. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to be here with you guys. So my first question to you, Cheryl, is often future work consultants come from management consulting and it can tend to have a very sort of technical, data-driven, ROI, tables, graphs, efficiency slant, and you have a decisively human approach. We think that's very, very interesting. We want to know more about the why behind your building your message and platform on these crucial human skills. Yeah. So, I mean, I've been a leader since the age of 23. I didn't become a leader because I was great at it. I became a leader because I handled bank robberies really well. Uh, And it's a true story. Absolutely true story. And so when I got my first leadership position, 23, you know, wet behind the ears, nine people reporting to me, I didn't know what I was doing. I had no idea. And so it was like, okay, what do I need to do to, to be successful at this? And I was like a go get them, let's get her done driving, let's make things happen person, which wasn't necessarily conducive to leadership, right? So I stand before all of you who are listening as a uh, converted control freak. Okay. So uh, my leadership success was based on getting things done, but not necessarily harnessing the power of people or the diversity of people. So as I created my journey and and I started my consulting uh, practice in 1997, uh, it was really around having an eye to the future and kind of going, you know, unless we're better humans, I don't see this ending well for any of us, um, including myself. And so I started sort of the journey of how do I be a better leader and realized really quickly it was about being a better human and not easy, uh, definitely aspirational. And I had a lot of growth and a lot of things. And I was very grateful in my career because a lot of people kick my butt and say, you know, you, you're good at this, but you need to be better at that. Like I had one boss say to me, you know, you're like a bull in the China shop, Cheryl. Mm-hmm. Like you're, you're awesome. Your customers love you, but your people, not so much. You know, they're coming in here complaining about you every single, you know, and I'm like, oh, okay, well, what, what's that about? You know, what, what is that? And then learning through great leaders that being a good human means not only understanding yourself and self-knowledge but also understanding other people. And so I became fascinated about the psychology of people and why people do what they do. And so my take on the future of work is AI, automation, chat, GPT, all these things are leveraging our ability to work faster, smarter, automate the mundane so we can elevate the humane. But unless we focus on how we connect better as humans, unless we elevate our leadership to I don't have a bunch of people working for me that are getting stuff done, but these are human beings that, you know, I need to connect to, inspire, engage, 
to me, that crucial human, that book came literally from my heart. It was really an evolution of all my previous books around. And I, and I put stuff in there that's quite vulnerable, to be honest. Um, around, you sure did. Yeah, around my journey, because I think it's important. I think we're all, I don't know if you agree with me, but we're seeking authenticity. We're seeking connection. We're seeking the truth. Like, don't BS me about how to be so idealistic. Give me the truth about the journey and what I need to do to get there. I think that that authenticity and truth, that idea has never been more challenged than it is right now, where, where collectively this idea is, is this thing I'm seeing true? Is this thing I'm reading true? Can I believe in this thing? And it causes something interesting in us as humans. And I think, you know, on the back of the pandemic where we had this moment of disconnection and we really longing for human connection, I think that's a powerful statement of, we need to be able to trust in what's in front of us and know that there's some sense of certainty. I think it's going to be a big problem for us going forward. Yeah. And I think the technology, just to your point, that's making us question even more. What is true? Was this written by AI? Was this written by a real person? Was it a combo deal? Is this fake news? What? Yeah. So I think we are in an existential crisis, but I'm also excited about it because it means that if the majority of people, and not everyone will be on board with this, but if the majority of people see that, that we are in a time where the only truth really is what we find inside ourselves to be true, that aligns with what we know to be true. And I think a commonality of truth is love. And I know that's from a business standpoint, right? We, we go to that and it's like, oh, wait, wait a second. But no, that's the, like, honestly, for me, I don't know about you, but for me, the truth is when it, I feel it. It's like a click. It's like, that's true. It's that heart alignment. Absolutely. And, and research and all the data and analytics are in there, but it's got to land where we go. That's true. It's not that I want it to be true, which is where, you know, propaganda and fake news and all that. I want it to be true because it matches up with my self identity. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, that's true because it's true for me. And it's a collective truth. That's I think where we're going. Yeah. It's the perfect segue into something that we were so excited to talk about, which is the use of love in your book. And I was, I have to tell you, I was very surprised that your book started right out with love. It felt, to your point, it felt risky, it felt vulnerable, but it was also such a breath of fresh air, right? So right in the beginning, in your first chapter, you have two spectacular quotes about love, one from John Lennon and one that you wrote yourself. So I'll start with the one from from John, John Lennon of the Beatles, obviously. He said, there are two motivating forces, fear and love. When we are afraid, we pull back from life. When we are in love, we open to all life has to offer with passion, excitement, and acceptance. We need to learn to love ourselves first in all our glory and our imperfections. If we cannot love ourselves, we cannot fully open to our ability to love others or our potential to create evolution and all hopes for a better world rest in the fearless and open-hearted vision of people who embrace life. And I think this is so powerful. And in a moment where, as you and Nate were alluding to, there's so much uncertainty, it is so easy to go into fear. And you're, you're inviting all of us to step into our heart space and step into courage. And then you write, where pre-pandemic, we glorified technology and idealized a roboticized future. Post-pandemic, we realized we all long for more human connection. We long for authenticity, we long for truth, and we long for all of us to be better humans. Using the word love in the context of business would have been seen as too soft. Just a few years ago today, Having gone through a global pandemic, we intuitively know at the core of our lives, caring for employees, of being a good leader and caring for customers, it is love. Now, we find this just incredibly meaningful and aligned to the mission that we are on. Uh, We very much feel like kindred spirits reading something like this. And as leaders, professionals, and organizations, I think what we're beginning to discover is that what you say is true, that the word love finally has a place at work. So talk to us about what is an appropriate approach to using love in the workplace, right? Beyond the obvious of where it's inappropriate, which we all know, you know, how do we bring love to work? Yeah. And when you were just reading those two quotes, I was just feeling the energy of it, right? It's like the energy. We feel it. Again, there's truth. There's truth. You hear it and you go, there's truth there. We know it. And then the fear comes into, 
oh, well, what does that look like for me? And to your point of love in the workplace, given all the challenges we've faced in the workplace, you know, the thing is that we have romanticized love or we've used love in the context of a romantic connotation, which then has diluted what really love is. And love as an energetic is a compassionate, engaged, caring energetic that says, I don't want to have something from you. I don't want to get something from you. I want to see you. Namaste, yoga. You know, it's like, I see you and you see me. And as two human beings, we're going to honor that. And by the way, love does not mean, and I say this in the book, this is not some idealistic, soft, ooh, kumbaya, we're all going to be, no. If you are practicing love, you have tough love conversations. You are honest. You are real. You are in your desire to grow for yourself and grow others, willing to have those crucial conversations that most people will avoid. In a true love culture, it's open, it's honest, it's collaborative, and you feel safe in that environment because you're not vilified and we're not coming from fear. So fear in the corporate world is CYA, you know, mm-hmm. cover your butt, yeah. um, <laughs> scratch each other's eyes out to get recognition and acknowledgement. My performance, if my boss is happy, then I'm happy. When I'm talking about love, it's no, no. If I'm doing a good job, then my boss, my team, my customers, everyone feels my intention and they feel my service. Now, I know for a lot of people, this is like way out there, right? I had one colleague, I I respect her deeply. And she's like, I'm not buying this love thing. She goes, she's a real driver, get her done kind kind of gal. I love her. She's awesome. And she's like, you know, because really what you're saying, Cheryl, is then we're putting up with bad behavior. No, 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 no. Love has boundaries. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Love is able to set expectation. Love is able. It's the intention of I am coming at this human to human and I'm not your leader who's better than you. We are colleagues. We are sharing leadership to create something that's going to make an impact in the world, in the business. And it can sound idealistic. And uh, in the book, I integrated a company that love is one of their values, um, Integrate AI out of Toronto. And they struggled even with my podcast saying, yeah, we know that this is a very aspirational goal to have love as a value in our organization. And they said they dialogued it ad nauseum. They did. They talked about it. And then finally, where they landed was, what's the difference between like and love? If I like my job, then it's a job. If I love my job, I'm bringing my whole self to it. And there's a level of energy and commitment that goes beyond like. And I, and I, I like how they described that because it was like, yes, that's a good corporate context of it. Right? Yeah. I also like that you said that there is a company who's using love. I think there are very few companies in, in all the values I've ever, in the organizations I've been in or read, I don't know that I've ever seen someone say love is one of our core values as a, as a corporation. and then. We know there's a difference between a poster on the wall and a page on a website that say values and the embodiment or the way of behaving on a day-to-day basis inside of an organization to embody that thing. It would take a lot of modeling because any values take a lot of modeling from the people that you look up to, from the people that you're aspiring to become or, or that you're working with. Am I modeling this value of love? What does that even look like? So having that practical example is critical. Yeah, I love that you're using the term modeling because the only way we can sort of see what it means is to see it in action. Yeah. Yeah. So when I when I asked that organization that, like, how do you know you're operating from the value of love within your organization? The CHRO said to me, again, to my point about accountability, uh, she said the risk of saying love is a value is it could be used against you. An employee could say, well, if you loved me, you wouldn't be giving me critical feedback right now. Yeah. <laughs> or if you loved me, you wouldn't be terminating me right now, right? And, and so she used those examples. And she said how, we, how we, we embody that or model that is we say to them, love is also tough love. So if I'm, we're coming at this from a pure intention of helping you, and it's your opportunity to receive it or not receive it, but this is love embodied because we are doing this, 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 and this. Yeah. It would not be love if we didn't give you the time to have a conversation about it or to ask for your feedback or, back or input or to allow you to take accountability for the situation. Like in our last podcast, we talked about 
being heart-centered and human-centered as you're going through layoffs. Right. But that idea of, it's a really practical example. Can you bring heart-centered into a layoff? You absolutely can. Yes, you can. Right? And we, and we talk about these examples. So it's possible, but I will give everyone grace and say, yeah, it's like building a muscle. If, we're, if we haven't done it much, it's going to feel really awkward and, and clumsy for a little bit until you get your feet. I actually have worked with many companies where coaching the leaders to compassionately because love is, compassion is part of love. So any difficult scenario where you're saying, I'm sorry, but you don't have a future here. There's two ways of doing that. One is abruptly and without any concern or care about a human's feelings about that scenario. The other is with compassion. Now, inevitably, when I say that, I'll have leaders say to me, but Cheryl, what about compassion fatigue? Mm. There's the lines, right? Uh, the, the compassion fatigue is when you absorb other people's realities. Compassion as a practice, as a muscle, is you, you because you're self-resourcing and your internal locus is so strong and foundationally strong, you are compassionate without absorbing it. Without taking it on. So I identify as a caregiver. I have given a lot of care to the people that, that I love over the years. And I have uh, something that I've had to work on, which I call overextend and resent, which is I can yes. overextend a level of care and then ultimately resent uh, the person or, or the, the effort that I'm making because it feels like it's just too much at a certain point. And then I get to that point that you talked about, which is compassion fatigue, where all of a sudden I don't care. Now, the person that's receiving the care is like, hey, wait a second. I thought you cared. How, how did you just drop off a cliff? You were there, you were there, you were there in this very committed way. And now all of a sudden you're, you're just sort of rolling your hands up and, you know, I could cry a river and, and you're, you're dry as a bone. How does that happen? I think it's wonderful that you called it out. I think it's wonderful that you spoke about it in the terms of frontline workers in your book. How do people set the right boundaries for themselves so that they avoid going to that place? Um, you know, what you described is what I call sort of the, the dark side of a healer. Healers are deeply feeling people. You know, when I described myself earlier as a driver, I'm a, actually a deeply feeling person and I take things very personally. So to your point, Alex, and thank you for sharing that about yourself, it comes back to self-resourcing, self-actualizing, and finding our own central locus of love. Mm -hmm. So if we're seeking love externally, we're always going to look for validation and proof that we are loving. If our internal locus is, I am love, and that takes years and years of meditation mm -hmm. and, <laughs> and therapy and yeah. all sorts of stuff, I know both of you guys understand. Yes. I, I too have been on that journey of attachment to what I'm giving. Am I loving? Am I, am I, are you proving to me that I'm loving because you're receiving my giving? Because I know for me, the, the more I work on myself and my self-knowledge and my, you know, triggers, if you will, compassion fatigue is a trigger to expectation. So my, I really wanted to hear your answer and I want to share my own personal experience with it which is I have to identify from, am I giving from a place of truly desiring to help or am I giving from obligation? Yes. Or am I giving from a lack of love where I am giving because I'm expecting mm. somebody to lean in and give me some sort of kudos or affection or something that I lack in myself. I'm giving to get, right? I have all this wisdom, but I'm not giving it because I think it can help you. I'm giving it because if I help you, then it validates that I'm wise. Right. Or even optics. Oh, look at Alex. He's doing the right thing. He's such a good guy. Yeah. And, and I love this dialogue. I mean, this is, this is juicy, right? Like th this is like where disruption of self-identity is the future. And, and then doing the work around that. There's something really beautiful in here too that we we're talking about and we're kind of saying overtly, but not quite. I'm going to bring it into the overt, which is the best version of us as human beings is through personal work. And what's interesting about work is we have built this development 
ecosystem around professional skills. And, and even right now, we're in this deep conversation of upskill, reskill, future skill. You got to become more technical. You're going to need these advanced skills. And I'm not saying we're not. I totally agree. That's a big thing. But we're also awakening to the best version of us is in deep work. We've got to do our work to be the best version of ourselves. And so far, corporate hasn't really owned that yet. You see it in fits and starts and their little sparks and people that are getting ahead. But I feel like, generally speaking, there isn't, I mean, we're seeing coaching enter the corporations now. This idea of therapy is starting to get to the place where it needs to be. For example, I have a therapist, Alex has a therapist. It's a very good thing. Hey, I'll go at two o'clock, you go at four o'clock. It's as normal as training. Like that's where we need to be. But I think I'm, that- I'm actually Nate's therapist. It's a really uh, exciting time. I feel like we're kind of collectively waking up to there's deeper work for us to do here. Well, and, and when you think about it, yes, absolutely. Completely 100% agree. And it, to me, it comes back to integration. So if we're doing the work and we're, we're self actualizing, that means I'm going to use technology for good. I'm going to use it to love better, to, to, to right the wrongs, uh, to make sure AI is not biased, to make sure that I'm not using social media to perpetuate fake news, to make, like, to me, if, if we're doing the work, we're going to use technology for good. And again, this might sound idealistic, but if you are fear-based, you're going to interact with technology from a fear-based place. Because we humans are the director of where technology is going. So this is the way I have felt for quite some time is that we don't need to fear the robots. It's actually the humans we need to fear because we program the robots. We are. So are. So it's like it's integration. It's not either or. A course I was developing yesterday talked about we need technology aptitude. We need to know how to use all these tools. But before that, if we're not doing the people first focus. That, that whole, how do we be better humans so that we're using technology for good, then yes, the future is scary. But I'm, I'm a pragmatic optimist and I believe through these conversations that we are having, that more and more people are opening to the realization that their problems are not externally created, that their problems are sourced from how they perceive the world and how they show up and behave in the world. I want to just make a public service announcement to our audience that dovetails from your book because you talk about how your social feed is all about personal enrichment, that everything that you follow is helping you to learn, helping you to feel better, helping to make you a better human. It lifts you up. We shared this same concept way back in the pandemic about how much fear there is in the system and the media and how we were also striving to use social media as a tool for enrichment. And my feed is, is the same. But this is a very decisive choice. Peter Diamandis, who we know you're a fan of and a student of, talks about the fact that typically the news features, I think it's nine or 10 to one negative stories versus positive, but they are incentivized to do so because of the way the amygdala responds to fear-based stories and the engagement that they get. And my mother, who's 76 years old, watches the news every evening. And I've been trying for so long to get her to find her news elsewhere. And I see the anxiety that it creates for her, right? I see it. And I get the text late at night. Did you hear about this? What are we going to do about this? And your call out to, we are able to use our technology for a greater good. And there's a quote in your book that goes back to what we were sort of talking about a moment ago about this journey to self-actualization, to the deep work. And it's from Marianne Williamson. She said, it's not greater technology, but rather higher consciousness that gives us the power to work miracles. And I think you're doing such a brilliant job on that journey and sharing these messages and not being, you know, the traditional big five consultant who's just looking at, you know, tables and graphs and going in, but saying, hey, you know, we need to up our game here, folks. We need to really up our game and change the way that we do things and change the way that we embrace technology and, and how we show up ultimately. But let's be clear, ROI and all those things do increase as a result of this approach. And I have real clients that I've worked with that that is true. So it's, again, it's fear-based of either or. It's that whole polarity, which I talk about in the book as well, polarity thinking, is that 
you know, it's either, either it has to be ROI or it's about the people. It can't be both. Well, no, we're here in the integration era, everybody, which means you can actually increase your ROI if you treat people like human beings. Flat newsflash. It, it's, it's like you could treat a human being like a cog in the 80s and the 90s because the system was designed for that. Yes. But in the 2000s and later, people are going, you know this, quiet quitting, the great resignation. Yes, there's layoffs, but those people are going to get jobs right tomorrow or they're going to become entrepreneurs. So the fear message is layoffs. The optimistic pragmatic is going, well, oh, those guys have tons of opportunity ahead of them. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you 10 companies I'm working with will hire them in a heartbeat because there's still a worker shortage until at least the year 2030. So the pragmatism here around fear-based messaging versus you know love, which is optimism, future focus, strategy, creative solution, all of those are under the umbrella of love. It's not just a concept. It can be enabled. It can be integrated. So I'm, I really feel like when I interact with people on polarity mindset, I have compassion for them because they're stuck in a perspective. Somebody who's watching the news, I have compassion for them because they're stuck in a perspective. And again, we can't do anything but meet them where they are and say, I understand that you, this is where you get your information. That's not where I get my information. So I can't meet you there. And I've had those conversations with other people in my life as well. It's like, I, I can have a dialogue about what's going on in the world, but are you open to my perspective? Or you wanted me to confirm your bias that it's all going to hell in a handbasket? Yeah. Right? So, yeah. so if you confirm your bias, I'm not your gal. But if we can have an open dialogue, let's do it. I'm, I'm game. Let's do it. Let's, let's go there. Right? Let me ask you about a couple of those. So polarity thinking in the workplace as it relates to the future work. So there's a lot of change happening right now. The fastest change in human history, the most disrupted workforce in human history. Can you talk to us a little bit about some of the practical examples of this is manifesting as polarity in the workplace right now? It's a natural phenomenon when you're going through change. So polarity thinking is, is, is firmly in the transition zone of change. So it's almost to expect it. You, you, you don't, you don't, we don't vilify it. We don't judge it. We expect it as behavior. And as a consultant, I expect it when I'm working with clients. So it's like when I see it, it's like, oh, that's what this is. And when I go, oh, that's what this is, it's like, okay, so what's the solution to it? Well, there's only two solutions when somebody's in polarity thinking or even a culture's in polarity thinking, which is you have to meet them where they are as far as their understanding of the current conditions. Cheryl, can you just define polarity thinking for our audience just just quickly? Polarity thinking is literally you're firmly rooted in either or. Mm. There is nothing. Other, it's, it's either or. We're either going to be ROI focused or we're going to be people focused. Individually, uh, polarity thinking is black and white. Uh, it's either got to be this or it's either got to be that. The challenge with it is it's it leads to conflict because you and I know that there, there, yes, there's absolutes in business, but in business, there's also creative solution. There's mm-hmm. thinking outside the box. There's ways to work around. So when people are anchored in polarity thinking, it's a clear outcome or behavior of resistance to change. Is it possible based on what you're saying, Cheryl, that it's not about bad people? You've elevated this conversation to a place to say, hey, we're going through a lot of change and change makes people very uncomfortable and uncertain. And the more likely we are to be in an unsettled place, it makes us kind of not show up as our best selves. Is that fair to say, hey, a lot of this is just people being in a tough spot? It's symptomatic. It's symptomatic of of disruption that they can't control and control is linked to fear. So another polarity is fear and love. Those are polarities, right? So yeah. if, I'm, if I'm coming at, uh, I'm, I'm thinking of a number of clients I'm working with right now through their change and through uh, a number of initiatives. And when I'm coaching an, an executive and they're in that definitive polarity thinking, my immediate reaction or response to that is compassion. Yes, right now, it is a very difficult, challenging time. No question that you've got these things going on. So let's look at what are the solutions. A lot of times when people are in polarity thinking, there is no solutions because it's either or, right? Or they're firmly rooted in their solution. And this is where I feel like if more leaders were embodying love, they'd be coaching from a place of love, which is patience, tolerance, acceptance, not judging people where they are, but rather just letting them be there and then helping them move forward. When you said meeting them where they are, go meet them where they are. You can't, you can't meet, I can't show up and go, hey, everybody, be like me. And then let's, 
like that's not going to fly. Yeah. It's more about tell me about your pain right now. Now again, as leaders, they go, I don't have time for this, Cheryl. Like I, I've got objectives, and I've got. I, it's more time to do this. It's like no, you're investing in the future of the relationship, which forms trust, which creates more output. I, I think it's a great build into something that you recently talked about on your podcast and on YouTube, which is this notion of conscious communication. Yes. I think it's a perfect segue into what leaders can do to level up because at the end of the day, it's how you communicate that makes people feel seen, heard, and understood. And so you conducted this survey where a thousand workers are sharing that they feel unseen, misunderstood, and out of the loop, and that this is a, a primary issue for them. And you go on to say that what leaders have been historically taught is baseline communications as foundational skills, but now conscious communication is going to rule the road going forward. So tell us a little bit about what that looks like. Let's talk about the do's and don'ts of conscious communication, because I think that elevates us right from where we were a moment ago into what are practical ways that leaders can embody this more when they are in that solipsistic, selfish place of what their agenda and their you know, near-term goals are. Let's start with baseline communication, because a lot of people assume that they're already they already have like really solid baseline communication skills. And baseline communication skills are the ones that have been taught for decades, which is knowing the difference between passive, passive-aggressive, uh, aggressive, assertive, and knowing how we're communicating. Are we communicating in any of those ways? The goal is to communicate assertively, which is win-win. So, you know, those are baseline communication skills. A lot of people that I coach don't even have clear awareness of that, right? Like they, they know that they're communicating, but they haven't built that context of, oh, wait a second, I'm passive-aggressive you know, because I'm doing this. I'm saying one thing and I'm doing another. A lot of people don't even know what that is, right? So baseline is that. My assumption as a leader is that we need to at least have baseline mastery, you know, conscious communication. And this is where, you know, in a world of, of technology, AI, robotics, conscious communication is where we take full responsibility for our, how we're, we're communicating, but also how we're being perceived. And we're actually very aware of multiple perspectives and multiple inputs. So a conscious communicator, in typical communication, it's like, I'm talking to you and I'm thinking about what I'm going to say next, right? That's agenda-based communication. But conscious communication is I'm sitting back, I'm receiving what you're saying. I'm analyzing it internally, but I'm also doing the head-heart integration piece that, that's in the book as well. Like I'm, I'm hearing it intellectually, but then I'm also going, okay, what, where, where does this land here? And conscious communication is you're now elevating to intentional focus on a love base, like I'm, I'm, for example, the two of you, my intention is to connect and communicate and elevate our dialogue for the purpose of us, but also for those that are participating. So that's my intention. So if I come from that intention, my words will support that. So I'm always looking at intention behind what I'm about to say. And then the next level of conscious communication is future and solution. So I'm looking to bring us to what's next versus so again, uh, baseline communication, people tend to focus on the past or they'll not even realize that they're criticizing instead of giving helpful feedback. Mm-hmm. So from a leadership standpoint, conscious communication is, is what I'm about to say going to help, harm? What's my, what's my intention here? Mm-hmm. Do I want to teach them a lesson? Well, if I want to teach someone a lesson, the way I give feedback is going to be very different than if my intention is to help them. So there are so many pieces to conscious communication. It's a whole, I mean, that could be a book on its own, Alex. You asked me if I was going to write another book. That could be its own book because there's so many elements and components to it that a lot of people, I don't, I know in my coaching, they do not realize that the way they're communicating is not adding value to polarity thinking, is not elevating the dialogue or the dynamic. And when we are consciously communicating, we are actually showing and modeling coaching and that we are believing in that person and that we're supporting that person and that we're moving the needle forward. It seems like there's a direct connection here to the me to we. Conscious communication is elevating beyond the selfish, the self-absorbed, the more for me, I win, you know, and, and we're exiting that place to hold space for caring about someone else, not just a metrics, to lift someone else so that we can both win, that all boats rise. So talk to us about this idea of me to we and maybe connect it to, you know, this conversation of conscious communication and love. Well, it's all connected. It's integrated. 
it, it, they're not separate concepts or contexts. So it, it is all. So me to we was a model I created, I think in 2012, as a result of working with AT&T. I was working with 6,000 of their leaders. And uh, one of the things that I got as a question was, you know, Cheryl, I've been told as a leader that um, I have a negative attitude. Somebody gave me that as an example. And I said, oh, so how do I know if I have a negative attitude? It was a brilliant question. And it caused me to really think about that, meditate on it. I, I really sat with that and I went, oh yeah. So people can be told something, but without the context or examples of what, how they're behaving, people can't change it, mm-hmm. right? It's their psychology, right? So the me to we model was, it was as much for me as anyone else, to be honest, because I am a driver personality and I've always been geared about win, win, win. Like, let's go, let's get, you know, let's, let's get things done. Let's make things happen. Um, but the, the fallback of me, which is, so the me to we model is personal blame, learn and share. The challenge with me is it's a lonely place to exist. So when you're, when you're bound to me and the personal side is where you have thoughts like, why am I the only one that knows how to do this? Or how come I'm working so hard and no one else seems to be working? Or, you know, I, I'm, uh, why, why, you know, on a personal level, why am I always the one emptying the dishwasher, right? It's like, it's mm-hmm. like, it's like this, this victim mentality that, that somehow I'm better than or separate from or isolated from everybody else. So it's a way of protecting ourselves out of fear to, to keep ourselves from being exposed or vulnerable. So, and by the way, let me make the caveat to anybody watching or listening that we're human beings and we will cycle through these and there's no shame or blame with where we are at any given situation. It's a tool that helps us identify where we are and then elevate. And so with personal, um, you know, when I find myself in, per- myself in personal now, is I, I, I go to, oh yeah, there I go, a pity party for Cheryl. Wait a second. What do I do to shift myself out of here, right? What are my resources? The next level of me is blame, which is a little bit better than personal, but not really because you're externally focused. So with blame, it's not my fault. It's the government's fault. It's not my fault. My boss's fault. It's not my fault. It's my family's fault. It's not my fault. I have all this work to do, right? So there's always an excuse or a reason or something outside of ourselves that we're pointing to. And it's me. So I often say when we're doing the the two-step of personal blame, personal blame, personal blame, we're not inspiring. We're certainly not coming from love. We are being self-focused. My goal is to help elevate myself and everyone else that I interact with to the learn level at bare minimum. So at the learn level, your identity is based around, I am constantly learning, even through the, the, the crappy stuff. So if something bad happens, what am I learning right now? Am I learning that I need to soften? Am I learning that I need more patience? Am I learning? Let's, let's use the, a personal example here from the pandemic. One of the things I learned through the pandemic was A, I had gotten back into a workaholic pattern mm-hmm. at the expense of my family, right? So pre-pandemic, I was, work, I, I was probably that close to burnout again. I'd been there once before, didn't want to go there again. But also what I recognized was that I, I was getting back into that me thing to my family. Do you know how hard I'm working? You know, I just traveled, I came back, you know, that whole, and I could hear myself and going, oh, yeah, no, that's not, that's not who I, who I am. No. So reframing that to learn is, well, what, what, what did I learn through the pandemic? Well, I learned that, yeah, I was a workaholic. I was, I was loving work more than my, my family. That's mm. a, and get that out loud is not, I don't feel proud of myself at all. You had a lot of beautiful vulnerability around this in the book. and. We love the me to we mindset because mindset is definitely a core topic here for us. That's why we developed the future of work mindset to help people you know, ride these waves of disruption. And you had some amazing prompts. And again, I'm, I'm just encouraging everybody to go out and get the book because there's so many practical exercises in here. And just a few prompts I want to share is you said, what do I value the most and are my actions aligned? Why do I take it personally when things happen out of my control? I identify a lot with that. I struggle with that. Who and what do I blame for my stress? I identify with that one as well. How much money is enough money? How can I share what I am learning to help others? And this is like half of them, folks. Like These are really, really fantastic. And I think when you take the time to reflect on these things, you can't help but go back to that hard place and know what's true and can't help but start to think about what is the greater good and, and where am I over-indexing on self? 
Yeah, I mean, linking that back to the me to we model, when when you live and learn and share, which is we, I strive to live and learn and share 90% of the time. And and when you're in learn and share, it's inspiring. You're adding value. You're self-disclosing your fears or vulnerabilities, but not because you're afraid of being taken advantage of, but because it's a connection. Mm. You are sharing everything you know to help people grow. You're not afraid of loss. You see loss as a learning or a lesson. Sounds like abundance. It, it is abundance. It's not fear. And abundance is a polarity to fear. That's fascinating. Um, I'm going to connect this to a trend and just see where this goes because I'm interested. So there's a trend of talent fluidity. There is a serious talent shortage as we need to upskill, reskill, future skill, 3 billion people. This is going to be a no small task. And this pushback, this shift in the energy of an awakening from people in the pandemic to say, hey, I can work from anywhere. I want a better quality of life. I want to be treated differently. I'm going to do great work for you, but I need you to meet me where I am using your words, Cheryl. So there are some leaders out there who are going, hey, I'm not going to meet you where you are. <laughs> Get your butt back in here and sit in this cubicle. But there are some um, leaders who are going, absolutely, it is time for an employee um, experience transformation. We don't need to be stuck in the stone ages anymore. My question for you is there's this idea of a network of places, which means it's sort of this awakening where you could be at home, you could be at the office, you could be at a co-working site, you could be at a hotel, you could be at a client site. That work actually in reality happens all over the place. And it wasn't really, I mean, in some roles, it was confined to one building or that sort of thing. But that to me feels a lot like a shift to a we mindset of, hey, I don't have to control this. I know it feels more comfortable if I did, but actually I just need to meet you where you are and let's go get good work done. Is that fair? Well, that's, you just summed up my work in a, in a nutshell. <laughs> I mean, with, with all my clients, that's the, that's the work is helping them make that shift from rigid control structure, which that's been, let's face it, that's been the successful workplace for the last 50 years, right? So again, I have compassion because it requires change to go to that place of letting go and trusting that people can be dislocated where they work. They can be anywhere and work from anywhere. And that requires a shift internally of, again, if you go to my book questions, you know, as a leader, I get leaders to ask themselves, is it true that work that's in, done in office is superior to work that's done anywhere else? And I'll challenge them on that. Give me proof that that's true. Give me some data that shows that this person who worked in your office is working less hard now that they're working remotely and nobody can give me the data. Yep. So, so it's like, this is a internal shift that's needing to happen. It's a mindset shift, a future of work mindset shift. It's a me to we mindset shift that goes to what did, how do, what has my identity been as a leader? And am I attached to that identity more than I'm committed to helping people be happy where they work so that we can get the work done? Because guess what? People that are saying, you have to come back in the office, you've got to do it this way. They're, those people are leaving in droves because we have an awakening, a consciousness of people going, I'm more valuable than you valued me. And I'm going to now love myself. We've got a whole movement on self-care and self-love. Love you cannot change the social change of that. This is, this is my leaders. Like You can't fight against reality here. You can order everybody back. Go for it. Let's see what happens. And they do. And guess what? 50%, 15%, 20% of people say, I'm peace out. I'm going to find something else. You know, reading your book and talking to you, it's pretty clear. You, you could have been a psychologist, Cheryl. Like there's no, there's no doubt about it. And in today's workforce with all the mental challenges we have, you know, burnout and the evolving need states, we have talked about, and you have talked about, the idea that managers and leaders need to embrace psychology more and more. This is tricky. You know, not everybody wants to get a psychological diagnosis from their boss. Let's be very clear about that. Um, how do you see this unfolding? Because we've talked about this very powerful theme of what we as individuals need to do and what leaders need to do to self-actualize and have more compassion and show up with more love and caring and thoughtfulness. And at the same time, you know, the need to really be able to find a way to care for the needs of others. And this is in, in that second bucket squarely. So how do we do more of that? How do we bring psychology into the workplace in a healthier way? What are some of the do's or don'ts on that? Well, let's be clear. 
that psychology is not diagnosis. I'm talking about psychology from a place of understanding people at a higher level. Yes. So understanding people, their personality. So many people have done DISC or Myers-Briggs or, you know, what's your color, like those personality assessments, right? Those are part of what I consider baseline communication. Like if you're a leader right now and you have not participated in that, you need that because it helps identify your personalities, what your defaults are. But more than that, it helps you meet people where they are because you can see that they're not trying to be difficult. They're just being who they are. So that, mm-hmm. that, that psychology is, is really about better understanding people. I feel like when I'm working with clients, I'm not diagnosing. I'm, if you're a psychologist leader and you're coaching, you're using that interest in people. You love people. You want people to succeed. So you're coming from that place of growth and learning and, and developing people. And so from there, you have the tools of psychology assistance, personalities, understanding generational uh, differences, understanding gender differences, cultural differences, uh, understanding that how somebody behaves is not, not an affront, minimizing assumptions. All of those are part of what I'm talking about when I'm saying leaders need to be psychologists. It's not that I want them to sit down and say to someone, so tell me all your problems. That is not what I'm saying. It's like, you share with me your problems and then together we're going to come up with creative solutions, mm. which really isn't psychology. It's psychology leadership integrated. Mm. Got it. More psychology informed you are, the better of a leader you're going to be, the happier you're going to be as a leader because you're not going to feel like you don't have the tools to deal with the challenges. And to your point about worker fluidity, all the generations now, I, I really credit millennials, Gen Ys for bringing this openness around saying, you know, I don't feel safe right now, or I'm uncomfortable. Like that would never be said in a workplace 20 years ago. Yeah. So, so we're, we're seeing that you have to, if you're me to we, you've got to understand these mindsets of people. They're not an affront to who you are. They're not a threat to your identity. They're different mindsets that are shaping the future of work, the future of our lives. Yeah. Alex and I call that human intelligence. And what we mean by that is we think for a long time, people have done this baseline, lower than baseline, pseudo caring or understanding about who is this human in front of me. But we think now it's incumbent upon everyone, leaders and employees, but particularly leaders, to become curious and fascinated by human intelligence. That's diversity, equity, inclusion. That's cultural intelligence. That's understanding the context of where we are as a human species post-pandemic. You know, there's a lot of interesting things in there. That's um, racial violence in the United States that we're watching on TV. You know, and and as a leader going, really, does that matter to me at work? You better believe it does because you're going to sound tone deaf if you don't have some of this intelligence. And I think that's a huge paradigm shift and elevation above where we are. Interestingly, I just saw on LinkedIn yesterday that Adam Grant called out MBTI and said, hey, I think this tool was really good for a long time, but it's kind of not good enough anymore. Yeah, it's baseline. That's yeah, why. Yeah, yeah. Agreed. I completely agreed. But, but again, polarity is discounting it. Integration is, it's valuable as we go on the journey of, like to me, I'm really about the integration. As soon as we call things out, it's polarity. It's, it's, it's and. MBTI had its day and its baseline. Where we're going to is here. I really like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm not, a, you know, even from a professional standpoint, everybody I interact with is, is doing their bit. They have value. You will not hear me badmouth anyone around what they're doing because on the evolutionary journey, everybody's adding value in their own perception. Cheryl, I love that. <laughs> that was fantastic. It just changed the whole energy of the whole thing. And it's such a practical example of polarity of, I don't need to make this wrong. I can just say that it's part of our growth arc and it completely changes the energy of the whole thing. I love it. <laughs> so I want to I want to grab onto polarity for a second. The three of us all have a strong unconscious bias that the future of work is human. Yes. Mm. yes. Right? True. Yes. So what if we're wrong? What if we're wrong? What if the future of work is undeniably digital and robotic? What if the pandemic was a moment that our hearts opened and the pendulum, you know, swings back to command and control leadership and we work, you know, to get paid and not for purpose? How do we hold ourselves accountable, the three of us and everybody listening, to ensure that that vision of the future doesn't happen? 
Well, first of all, with bias, I think it's important to acknowledge the bias because we all have them, right? So yeah. yes, uh, we are biased because it's our, our work. It's what we believe is the future. Yes. Yes. However, it's not just a bias. It is confirmed by <laughs> data, research, you know, there, there's things that it's not a hallucination. There are mm. things that support that. Um, and by the way, anybody could say that of any bias. So yeah, so let's be clear on that as well. Maybe this is my pragmatic optimism or my idealism, but I feel that the research we've done at Next Mapping on social change and the amount of, of, of surveying we do, that rather than go to a roboticized command and control future, I think from my research, people will choose freedom over fear because of the, the, where we've evolved. And that freedom might mean more freelance, more entrepreneurs, more smaller firms where people do have control over the destiny and the essence and the culture of their organization. Now, having said that, I'm very aware of the amount of mergers and acquisitions and growing companies that are out there. Um, but I feel those companies, if they do not allow entrepreneurism within their, their massiveness, then people will opt out. And, and yes, people need to have jobs to pay the bills, but there's so much hybrid has opened up so much opportunity that I don't see us going backwards. And again, that could be my hallucination, but that's, that's my response. I love that. I love the notion of freedom over fear. I think that's really powerful. And I think it's right on. And, you know, we raise that because I think it is important to, to hold ourselves accountable to what this moment requires and to ensure that we and the people listening continue to strive towards this better future that we're all in the process of co-creating and that we don't slip back to where we came from because uh, I don't, I don't like the way that other, that other road sounds. Yeah. And again, um, I, 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 you know, could it happen? I guess, but then there'd be, it'd be like a dystopian hunger games or, matrix where there'd still be a whole portion of us going, no, I choose freedom over freedom. Well, that's right? what I was thinking is if, even if, even if this happens in pockets, which we will see pockets, we are, look, I'm a big fan of technology. I think it's going to do things that blow our minds. For example, I think we're going to have unbelievable breakthroughs in medicine and technology and science because of these amazing technologies. And I am for that. I do think some people are going to misuse it. I do think there are going to be some bad things that happen. But overwhelmingly, I think that if you look at the arc of humanity, we take these things and we help to make life better. Let's just be clear that when the internet came, we, everybody was saying the same things we're saying. Yeah. We have an evolution here with AI, robotic. We're, we're actually IoT. So now it's just, it's an evolution. So bad things have been happening since the beginning of time with, with any new technology. Right. So again, from an integration perspective, it's really... Where do we choose, the three of us, where do we choose to put our focus? Well, it's clear that we've chosen our lane, which is to help assist, add value, love, elevate. And for me, that's the lane I'll continue on and the path that I'll continue on. And so far, it's worked for me personally. So that's the place that I'll continue to seek is that, that, that direction. Yeah. Thank you. I'm going to take us into a speed round. The speed round is very easy. Cheryl, all you have to do is answer the question kind of with your gut, with your intuitive re response to this question quickly, and we'll just move through it. The first question is going to be from Alex. So Cheryl, despite all you know, all your wisdom and all your personal development work, what is one area you still struggle with regularly? Probably being more inclusive with my team. I probably still do things more myself than I than I could. I could let go more than I do. Looking back on your career, you've done so much. What is one thing that you wished I would have started that sooner? I should have started that sooner. Ah, uh, I probably would have started therapy sooner. <laughs> Good answer. Mm. Good yeah. answer. Yeah. <laughs> who are one or two people who had a huge impact on your life and success? Oh, that's easy. My dad, who since passed. So my dad died when I was 20. He was 43. He was a 1950s traditional guy, but he raised me of, Cheryl, you can be and do anything. You can do anything a guy can do. So don't ever let anyone tell you otherwise and go kick butt. That's amazing. Oh, wow. When you get worn down, and we all get worn down, 
How do you recharge your batteries? Um, I have some self-love processes that I do. And so those self-love practices are I meditate daily. I am out in nature daily. So those are restorative for me. They keep me grounded. And um, talking to, I have very self-actualized friends. So talking to them and helping them keep me centered and grounded and reminding me of who I am and what I'm committed to. Oh, and the other thing is I do go to the gym. Like I do need to work out. So yoga and gym allows me to move energy through my body as well. I want to build on this for a moment because you shared earlier that you are a very sensitive person, that you have a, a, a big world of feelings. And I identify with that so much. And there were a lot of resources and a lot of the comments in the book that made me truly feel like, you know, we are, we are kindred spirits. And, you know, if I don't do my morning practices or my daily practices, I'm a mess. So, you know, I used to numb out feelings with drugs and alcohol. I've been sober for 16 years and now I go to meetings even to this day. In the morning, I meditate every morning without fail. Meditation was a spotty practice for me for years. I discovered it as a regular practice uh, in the pandemic. I get to an ice plunge at least once a week now and sit in the ice for three to three and a half minutes. I've got a number of uh, folks that I, that I talk to that help me get out of myself. And I think every day, what can I do to help others to get out of that small me that just wants, you know, to focus on whatever, whatever little, little world of Alex's needs are coming up. (laughs) (laughs) So I think it's, I wanted to share that, you know, with you and with our audience as well, because I think if you, if you're feeling these feelings, whether it's, you know, hungry, angry, lonely, tired, irritable, any of the above, that having a system of tools to manage these things, because we all are doing more than ever before these days, it seems like just about everybody is doing so much. And so finding a way to, to manage, manage it and stay in balance is, is critical. Last question, Cheryl, what do you want your legacy to be? You know, it's funny because that's a, that's a question that gets asked. You know, you, you think about that. I do. As, as part of, as you get older for specifically, you know, what, what do I, what is, what do I want my legacy to be? I, you know, um, some tombstone headers. She loved a lot. Uh, she came, she did what she was, she thought she was supposed to do and, and she left. Um, but, but honestly, from a, a truly it would, the legacy would be to my family, to my daughter, my, my grandkids, that they would go, I'm going to get emotional. You know, she was an amazing lover of our family. She was a maternal hub of our family. She was, she loved a lot. She was generous. She uh, inspired. She, she helped us succeed. That, that would be my legacy. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. I, I know exactly what I want my tombstone to say. I wanted to say, here lies Nate Thompson's therapist. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. (laughs) Cheryl, Thank you. Your legacy beyond the powerful impact that you're having with your family, with your children, with your grandchildren is to be a lighthouse. You are a lighthouse for this conversation called the future work and for helping people aspire to their potential to discover and rediscover themselves and to uh, open to this rapidly changing world. That's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And it's an additional piece to that wonderful legacy you already have. Well, I see that right back at both of you, honestly. So from, from my heart to yours, what a, what a wonderful dialogue. What a beautiful conversation, really. Yeah. Thank, Thank you. you. And, and you, are, you are everywhere. You're on LinkedIn. You've got 10 books. You've got a podcast. You've got a fantastic YouTube channel. And as we shared at the outset, you know, people can find you at nextmapping.com. But where else can people go uh, or where else would you urge people to go to, to check out your work? I think you, you, you got them all. I don't, I don't, I think that any of those places is where you can find me. <laughs> I'm pretty accessible. I mean, you know, because I allow audiences to text message me and stuff, it's like you can DM me through Instagram. You can message me. I'll tell you where I don't spend a lot of time is Facebook. I'm not on Facebook much, mostly LinkedIn for business. And then Instagram, I have both Cheryl Cran and Next Mapping on Instagram. So, yeah. Fantastic. Thank you again. This was such a treat, such a pleasure. And we, we truly feel honored to to have this dialogue with you today and and to have you share your heart and your insights and your incredible body of work with our audience. Thank you both. Keep doing the excellent work you're doing because the more of us that are doing it, the more change we're enabling. 
Thank you for joining us on this journey. In a world where attention is scarce and content is abundant, it means a lot. To learn more about this episode, go to disruptedwork.com forward slash podcast, where you can find show notes and key details about the episode, our guests, and how to connect with us. Our website also contains additional resources for learning, including our future work mindset model and action plan. The best way you can support the disrupted workforce is to subscribe to our show on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. To help others thrive in the future work, spread the word by rating and reviewing the podcast and sharing your favorite episodes with the people you care about. Disrupt yourself to unlock your future.